All right. Whatever's first. So, and then the door will fall off its hinges, <laughs> and we'll just we'll just take it as it comes. Go ahead and take your speed up. Your number one now. Runway two seven clear to land. Green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. On my left, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. And over there across the table, starstruck like all of us. <laughs> Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. And Chris, we have a guest with us today. Uh, and I wasn't kidding when I said we're all a little starstruck. <laughs> Absolutely. My goodness. Tell us, uh, tell us about who's sitting there in the uh, the honor or uh, guest of honor spot. Well, joining us today um, for for a special uh, episode is uh, someone who, if you're a fan of warbirds, spacecraft, uh, the history of our, our country's space program, uh, the name is no stranger. Uh, it's Colonel Frank Borman. Uh, Colonel Borman, thank you for being here with us. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. One thing I, I might suggest to you, you might want to close that door before we start. <laughs> For those of you, oh my gosh, that's it. The episode's over. We're sitting in our studio right now in the, uh, in the basement uh, of, uh, of EAHQ, sort of an undisclosed corner of the building. And we're getting ready for this episode, and and you know we're we're eager to uh, to make our guest feel welcome, and to try in vain to convince him that he's in the hands of some sort of responsible operation, and we cannot close the door to save our lives. We were pounding on the door, bending the door, uh, at one point almost disassembling the door, and then finally we decided uh, to heck with it. Uh, we're just going to go with with the door open, so surfing without a net. So. So thank you very much for that extremely helpful suggestion of closing the door. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, wow. I know we talk about we're going to talk about space flight, but I also know that you're really uh, passionate about aviation and aircraft. Yeah, so really, my first love and my my best love was was aviation. Uh, space flight was was important. It was, uh, but it was more of a. Uh, Ambition and a job than than uh, than an enjoyment. Well, can you let's take us back a little bit. Can you remember that first time you ever went flying? What was it in? Who were you with? I was about five years old. My dad uh, took me up for we got a ride in a uh, a Waco, and then he and I were in the front seat, uh, and it was a, uh, a a grass strip in Ohio. I don't remember exactly, when, but I was five years old, and of course it was exciting and. The wide open spaces, the wind, and the it was it was, I still remember it. Wow, what was it about it? You said it's exciting. Anything else about it that makes it so memorable? No, I I can't, Mark. I can't, uh, you know, put my finger on it. It was just something that it struck me, and uh, and then again, I was uh, I was fortunate because I had an aunt that worked at Wright Field. She was a widow. Her husband had lost his uh, life from World War One. But in any event, uh, she was uh, acquainted with a, a man named Hagenberger, Alan Hagenberger, who was a navigator on the first flight from uh, the mainland to Hawaii. Oh, wow. And he gave me a book called The Red Eagle. And I still have that book. And it, uh, I bet I've read it a, at least a thousand times. That flight and that book did it for me. Wow. No wow. kidding. 
So how long, uh, so you're five, you get this first flight, you get this book, you're, you're immersed in it. When did you actually start learning to fly yourself? Well, I, uh, I was very blessed because uh, I had very, very wonderful parents, uh, even though we were poor as church mites, church mice, and they could but not. But I bet your doors worked. <laughs> not very well. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, when I was in high school, I, I, I started actually in junior high school building model airplanes, uh, and I was fascinated with building model airplanes to uh, progress to a, gas models. I remember I had one zipper, Comet zipper that stayed aloft for three hours in a, in a thermal. Oh my God! So we were totally immersed in that. My dad died, and then, uh, in high school I uh, found out that I could take a uh, a lesson in a tailor a tailor craft for nine dollars an hour. That included the instructor. Wow! And I had a, I had three jobs, and I worked three jobs during the week in that before and after school, and I just made enough to take a couple of uh, flights on uh, on Sunday. And that's how it all started. I started out, and incidentally, and this was in 1940, oh, 43 or 44, with a uh, with a woman instructor, and there weren't many around then either. But uh, she she was wonderful. Wow, that's spectacular. So, did you uh, did you think that you were um, destined for a career in aviation at that point? It probably didn't take much convincing. <laughs> no, I was I was, uh, I was uh, destined. I I thought I was going to be destined for a career at that point. And I wanted to fly. But uh, when I graduated from high school, it was 46. The war was just over. And the one thing that nobody needed was pilots because they had so many pilots coming back right. from the war. So I had a, I had a, uh, a choice to make. I, I thought, well, the next best thing is an aeronautical engineer. And then I'll, and, but there wasn't any good uh, aeronautical schools in Arizona. And I didn't have the money anyway. So I, uh, I volunteered for induction into the, there was a draft then, but you could volunteer for induction into the Army serve 18 months and then you get the GI Bill. My big plan was to serve 18 months then go to college somewhere where they had an aviation program. So then what uh, what happened? You you, you joined well, up? Well what happened was <laughs> incidentally this is how aviation has played such a big part of my life. I was there was a judge in town who had a uh, a son who was a little on the uh, shall we say marginal side from the standpoint of having problems in school and so on. And he called me up one day and said, I understand you build model airplanes. I wonder if you would come spend some evenings with my son. I'll buy the kits, and you try, I'm trying to get him interested in something, sort of like a Young Eagles program. Sure. You know? And so I said, sure, and went over there, and we, we, uh, John was his name, and we got to be pretty good friends. And one day the, the judge comes in to me and said, Frank, I understand uh, that you want to go in the military. And I said, yes, sir, I, I'd like to apply for West Point so I could go into the Air Force, but uh, it was too late. He said, well, my, my, I have a friend, a Congressman Harless, who has uh, a third alternate to West Point that's open because the guy that was accepted, a third alternate, decided he wanted to be a dentist. And so it's open, <laughs> and it, it's very close to time. He doesn't have time to, to, uh, to compete it again, and do you want to do it? And I, oh, yes, sir. So I went back. Uh, I hadn't taken any of the tests. I went back to West Point on uh, – I don't know, 15th of June, and sat there for two uh, two weeks and uh, and uh, taking tests. And uh, I never will forget. Although we weren't in the military, we lived in in the uh, the empty cadet barracks. It was summertime, and we all were marched out one morning and stood in the line. And uh, he, the sergeant, called off a bunch of names, and the following people stepped forward, and they all stepped forward. And I thought, oh my God, well I didn't make it. That's all. I'll try next year. 
And he said, uh, the, those of you that have stepped forward, I'm sorry you didn't make it. Those that, that you <laughs> that you said are still in ranks, congratulations. And that's how I got into West Point. Wow. And incidentally, that was, that was kind of a, unusual, too, because there was four people ahead of me. The principal, the first alternate, and the, no, three people ahead of me. And the, and the second one, I was the third alternate. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What was it like at West Point? What were the conditions? It was a... It was a it was a challenge. You know, the people that were running West Point had been uh, the leaders in World War II, and there wasn't any touchy feeling <laughs> about, about it. There was a there was a yes sir, no sir, and no excuse sir. But the but the idea of duty, honor, country, and the mission coming first really took hold on me. Here I was a 18 year old kid from Arizona, and uh, it, I was indoctrinated. I was more indoctrinated. I was inoculated with it. So you did your, your four years at West Point and came out with a commission. Did you do any uh, flight training while at West Point, or was it something that after you were you graduated? No, the uh, flight training had been done at West Point during the war, but they they suspended that after the war. And so I didn't. I graduated in 1950 with two months leave, and then I was to report to uh, Sher uh, Sherman, Texas, uh, to Perrin Air Force Base for basic training. Okay. So then. Uh, at what point uh, during your, your time at West Point did you did you make it clear that you wanted to fly, or was that sort of known from the beginning? And did you have any did you have the, any say? The, in the that? day I walked in there, I wanted to fly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> My home yeah, there wasn't an Air Force Academy there, right? And they took twenty five percent from West Point, twenty five percent from Annapolis, and then we went to a, to a Air Force. Oh, okay. but my my goal the whole time was to fly. Right. So how, talk a little bit, if you would, about your uh, about that first uh, first time flight training, and how that uh, how that worked after after West Point. Well, yeah, I I I, uh, I reported to uh, to a parent on August, you know, September of 1950. We started out in the T6, and of course I'd flown a Taylor craft, and uh, the T6 looked like a monster to me, <laughs> but. Uh, I was fortunate because a lot of the, my classmates and had never even been in an airplane, so it was a uh, it was a challenge, and I loved it from the beginning. It was a wonderful deal. It was another deal. The, the Air Force was not uh, needing a lot of pilots, so uh, the, the, all it took was one ground loop, and you were gone. I mean, there wasn't any uh, second oh. chances on that type of. Thing. I don't know how many of us. I, I don't actually know how many washed out, but a lot washed out. And, uh, basic training and you know the t6 was a challenging airplane for the first that had been the advanced trainer in world war ii sure yeah. it's interesting that you started on that rather than yeah. so they weren't still using stearmans or anything mm -hmm. yeah. anything so, like that, at that so point. your classmates who had never flown before they just went straight into the t6 that was the first plane they flew exactly wow <laughs> <laughs> well, throwing them into the deep end yeah uh, we were talking a little bit about um the washout rates and people you know not making yeah. it and if it wasn't for a special uh, woman, you may not have had a career in the Air Force. No, that's right. Uh, I went through uh, Williams and jet training, and then I was assigned to Nellis Air Force Base for combat crew training. And while I was there, uh, I broke an eardrum dive bombing. And uh, although I had, I had orders to go to the Philippines, but instead of flying the way the rest of the pilots did, they sent me on a boat with uh, orders I never will for it said DNIF duty not in flying fall not involving flying oh so uh, okay I reported into the uh, 
the 44th Fighter Bomber Squadron. It was commanded by Major Charles McGee, a Tuskegee Airman, and one of the finest men I've ever known in my life. Uh, I never will forget the, the, there were about four of us, second lieutenants reported in, and we stood there saluted. Major McGee was sitting behind his desk, and uh, he looked at us, and he said, uh, now, you gentlemen may have heard organizations where the commander said, you play ball with me, and I'll play ball with you. I want you to know that in this organization, you play ball with me or I ram the bat up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so right away, I, I, I realized that uh, we were involved with people from World War II who had seen combat, and I think Colonel McGee now has more combat fighter time than anybody that ever, ever lived, uh, lived in the Air Force. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, the doctor in the Philippines determined that my ear was never going to get better, and so he grounded me permanently. And I did everything possible, and finally I complained so much about it that uh, I volunteered to go back to the Army. I volunteered to go to Korea as a forward observer. All was denied. I tried to get sent back to the States for treatment. They said no. So then he sent me to a clinic in Manila, Chichemko Clinic. The lady, Philippine lady had studied in, in Paris under Madame Curie. Wow. And uh, she, there wasn't any x-ray treatment then, but she put small pieces of radium in my ear and in my eustachian tube, I guess, for every, every day, once a week for six weeks. I went back to the doctor, and he said, well, it, it, has, one, it has healed. you got one layer there now. But the eardrum is made up of three layers, three plies. You only have one. As soon as you go up, it's going to break again. And so you're, he said, you know, I'm getting tired of you bothering me, Lieutenant. You're grounded permanently. You might as well face it. These are your orders, all the way from Air Force headquarters, grounded permanently. So I went home to my wife that night. Here's this 22-year-old 20, woman with a baby and pregnant, 8,000 miles away from home. And I said, look, Susan, I've had it. I'll serve my required time to get out and become an aircraft, uh, aircraft engineer, engineer, go take an engineering degree, and, and we'll live that life. And she looked, and I always admired her. I never, anybody had this much courage, but she said, you will not quit. You will not quit. You go see Major McGee and get him to take you for a ride in an airplane. And I said, well, oh, all right, I'll try it. I'll try it. And here, the, you know, flying in fighters at that time was a, a dangerous job. Uh, they lost, while we were at Nellis, we were losing two people a week uh, for uh a year just in in peacetime and in, in peace training time. exercises yeah. they, 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 the theory on on the people that came back from the war was if you're not having casualties you're not training realistically and it was a it was a disaster wow. so but anyway uh so i went to see major mcgee and i explained to him and i said look i need to ride in the worst way but i want you to know i'm i'm ordered not to fly and the first thing he said was let's go fly <laughs> and so we did we took me up to t-33 and uh depressurized and that everything came back my ear, ear felt like it always it cracks like hell like it does today but uh, uh i i said uh it's you know, fine i went to see the flight surgeon he said well i told you that uh, your ear is gonna it's fine it hasn't uh, changed but it's not going to get any better and you can't fly and i told him i just flown and thank god he was an understanding person he called major mcgee and then he said okay lieutenant you win and put me back on flying status wow that's how, and my career was really saved by my wife. Wow. And who would have, who would ever thought, you know, stepping way back and looking through the, the prism of history, 
that there's a pathway from from Madame Curie to the <laughs> Apollo space program. That's that is absolutely amazing. And yeah. I appear with with an earful of radium, you know, yeah. growing a new eardrum uh, because you wanted to fly so bad. Yeah. I, well, I. Uh, you know, as, as you can imagine, every time sub doctor looked in my ear, I was nervous. My, oh, sure. My blood pressure must have gone up to 180. But anyway, <laughs> when I was taking the NASA physical, the, the wonderful old Navy captain was the ear, nose, and the throat guy. And he looked in my ear, and I never will forget. He says, young man, you got a funny ear here. And I said, yes, sir. He said, does it bother you? And I said, no, sir, not a bit. <laughs> he said, well, if it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> You're past. <laughs> wow. Well, and and how did um, how did you decide to pursue a career at NASA? Well, I'd, I'd gone through uh, the Air Force. Uh, I was an instructor in their instrument flying school, and then I was a instructor in the fighter weapons school, the Top Gun school. And while I was at West Point teaching thermodynamics, the Russians launched the Sputnik. And uh, it was clear that that was a, uh, at least to me, that that was a major challenge in the Cold War. And uh, I decided that I'd try to take advantage of the degree that I had from Caltech in aeronautical engineering and, uh, and apply for training at the test pilot school. That's what led to the NASA. So um, one of the big personalities in the space program back then was, uh, was Deke Slayton, uh, the, uh, the, the chief astronaut at the time. Uh, what was it like working with him? Deke Slayton, uh, as you probably know, was uh, grounded because of heart fibrillations, and uh, because he couldn't fly, he ended up being in charge of the astronaut office. And I'm quite convinced that was a, a wonderful, it was a tragedy for Deke, but it was a wonderful thing for the program. Deke had integrity, he had knowledge, he was totally committed to the mission, and uh, because of his integrity, I don't think anybody ever challenged his selection of crews. Deke Slayton, was a, a remarkable and wonderful man. When um, your first, so your first space flight was going to be what would be Gemini. Um, you had a two week trip with Jim Lovell uh, in something the size of a Volkswagen. Um, <laughs> a sailor inside of a Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. Uh, can you tell us what were the what was it like being up there for two weeks in something like that? Well, Gemini Seven. Uh, was was the long duration flight? It was basically a, a physical flight to determine whether you nobody had stayed in zero g that long before. Of course, it's trivial now because people have been up for over a year. But nevertheless, they didn't know then, and so uh, we were uh, we were really uh, a medical flight. And they, uh, I found out then you you one of the things you, you never want to do is trust a doctor who's doing research, <laughs> because in their eyes you're nothing but a lab rat and. and uh, we had all kinds of, uh, of problems. I remember that one of the things that they wanted me to do was to take off with a probe and an artery, you know, and uh, so they could determine the arterial pressure. And fortunately, I was able to can that, but I wasn't going to take off in a, on a rocket with a something stick in my in my artery. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it was a uh, a long grinding mission. Well, from because we were short on fuel. For many days, we just drifted. Uh, all on the other thing, it was one of the most exciting things was looking out. They gave us a uh, coordinates to point to one time, and right out of the ocean came a Polaris. Oh, that was wow. uh, that was exciting as could be. And then over the Kwajalein, 
we were monitoring with infrared the uh, reentry of uh, Minuteman missiles fired in. And it was funny because they were entering below you. And you could see it when they lit up the the atmosphere. Wow. So it was, uh, and then we were the uh, passive targets for Gemini Six in the first rendezvous. Yeah. So what was that like? That was that that was basically the first major space achievement uh, that we beat the Soviets on. Uh, what was it like being part of that? Well, yeah, as I said, we were we were just passive. When we watched the, there came this bright light. Slowly, it got brighter and brighter and bigger, and, uh, and it turned out to be Gemini Six, and uh, they flew. Uh, close to us, and then we flew for a while. The, the Gemini spacecraft was remarkable. You know, there's no perturbations up in space. There's no atmosphere, so flying formation was a piece of cake. It was one, it was really wonderful. We could get within a foot of each other and not not have any problems at all. It's, so uh, one of the things about Gemini Seven, you know, in two weeks uh, in a volume smaller than the front seat of a Volkswagen Bug, your partner, you either become good friends our foremost enemies. <laughs> and uh, I was very lucky because Jim Lovell's a wonderful, compatible guy and we're still dear friends to this day. Hey everyone, this is Tom. We'll be back with more of this episode in a moment, but first, here's a brief message from Jack Pelton. Here's a special message for all you Green Dot podcast listeners. Hello, this is Jack Pelton, the chairman of the board and CEO of EAA. Today, I'm asking you to make a year-end gift to the EA All-Member Annual Fund for Excellence campaign. It's only through your generous support that EA can open the doors to aviation for young and old alike. With nearly 250,000 members worldwide, gifts of all levels are important to meeting our $1.2 million goal. Sharing the spirit of aviation during the season of giving by making a donation opens endless possibilities for the next generation. The impact of your gift is far-reaching and makes a difference right away by underwriting museum educational programs including school tours, safety and advocacy initiatives, resources for EA chapters and experimental amateur-built home builders, Air Academy and Sport Pilot Academy programs, the Woman Soar you soar experience. Programs that nurture the next generation of aviators. Flight experiences in a variety of historic aircraft. Sustaining and improving our beautiful campus and facilities that preserve, curate, and promote aviation. Your decision to make a year-end gift makes it all happen. Please make your $25, $50, $100, or a generously more tax-deductible donation today online at EAA dot org backslash annual fund or by mail thank you for your support and now back to the green dot podcast so at that time uh you know this is the just about the height of the cold war certainly tensions are about as high as uh, as they, they get and they would stay that way for quite a while what um can you speak to that a little bit what as you're in Gemini 7 and you're in orbit, are you thinking at that point about, about beating the Soviet Union? Is that, is that a motivating factor for you at that point? Well, that's the only reason I was there. And, but I, I want to tell you that uh, the idea that the Apollo program was some sort of achievement or advancement in science is true. But the primary purpose of the Apollo program was really to win the Cold War battle of, uh, of space. Uh, that was the... Uh, that was the basic reason. Anything else uh, was secondary. And it wasn't just me, but the whole 
beat the Russians permeated the whole organization. It was a wonderful place to work because everybody was motivated, down to the, the lowest level in, in, in NASA, from Jim Webb, who was an administrator on down. The, the overriding goal would beat the Russians, and it was uh, people did everything or anything that it required to do the mission. It was, there was no touchy-feely. There, there was, you either did the mission and, and made it happen or you got out of there. And it was uh, the giants like Chris Kraft and Dr. Gilruth and Slayton and George Lowe, they were irreplaceable. I, uh, I was very, very fortunate. Can you possibly imagine what uh, your reaction would have been at that time, at that age, if somebody had somehow come back in time and said, you know, 40, 50 years from now, we're going to be hitching rides to space with the Russians? No, I can't, although I must say this. Uh, after Apollo 11 and after the, you know, really after Apollo 8, the, the Soviets gave up their lunar aspirations, and I figured that the battle was won. And then President Nixon uh, sent us to the Soviet Union as part of the uh, opportunity uh, to promote detente through uh, space. But I found the uh, the Soviet cosmonauts they, and the uh, scientific leaders were gracious losers. Uh, they they were friendly, and and I really do believe that we not only won the space race, but we we helped to begin the dismantling of the Soviet Union. Well, and it's interesting because I, I know learning from you that um, you actually spent a good deal of time with the cosmonauts after. Um, yeah, we uh, the. the uh, we, President Nixon sent Susan, my wife, and my boys and I through. I think we were there about 10 days or two weeks. We went all over Russia. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Kellish, who was the head of their scientific community. They were all very, very open. And uh, and, and I had the feeling that the people with, uh, with any sort of integrity and brains in the Soviet Union knew that their system was doomed yeah. even then, although they couldn't admit it. Sure. Wow. Um, as we progress into Apollo, uh, could we could we ask about Apollo One, and do you remember where you were when you heard about it? Yeah, the, my family and I were were having a supper with some dear friends in Houston at a lake outside of Houston. And I don't know how they ever found me because I hadn't told anybody where we were going. But a a a Texas Highway Patrolman or Ranger, whatever, knocked on the door and said I was to call Deke Slayton and at the uh, NASA right away, and I did. And then Deke told me about the fire, and that I was to be in the in uh, the Cape tomorrow morning because I was on the committee that would investigate the fire. Wow. And um, how did did you get a sense? And I know that it's been talked about that you were, you know, that you were working to. Um, well, did you get a sense that you were just working to get the truth out? What happened? You didn't have any pressure from anybody to. Well, this. Uh, this is a part of Jim Webb's uh, really political skills. He even convinced Congress to let NASA investigate itself. Can you imagine that happening today? <laughs> Absolutely Impossible. not. Yeah. But, uh, but who else would have been qualified? Well, that that doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter today either. today. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm a guy who couldn't close a door, so I'm no judge of, I'm no judge of anything. But, uh, but he ran, and they placed the... The man that headed the uh, the committee was uh, Floyd Thompson from the head of Langley Research Center, 
And uh, there was no question in any of our minds. The truth was out. That's what we were after. We weren't trying to protect anybody. And, and uh, Dr. Thompson made that clear from the beginning. It was, uh, it was America at its finest. Oh. And, I mean, and, I mean, we lost you know, one of our finest heroes, Ed White, which was. Yeah, he was my closest friend in the program. He, he was, uh, our families were, the, were very close, so that was a, a blow. Someone once said, and I don't remember if it was yourself or one of the other astronauts we were lucky to have here, but somebody said if they ever decided to put a picture of an astronaut next to the word astronaut in a dictionary, it should be a picture of Ed White. I think that's true. He was was as close to being an all-American human being as you could come. Wow. So after Apollo 1, um, the program picks up again with Apollo 7, which is the first test of the, of the new redesigned command module. And then um, the original mission profile for 8 was going to be the, uh, the test of the lunar module uh, in Earth orbit, but that kind of fell behind, and, and a couple of other, other world events happened, and uh, you were presented with a new mission profile for Apollo 8. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what your first thoughts were when it was uh, proposed to you? Yeah, our, our original mission was Apollo 9. We were to fly uh, and exercise the lunar module and the command module uh, in early uh, 1969, or I think March or, February, March or April 1969. But the lunar module was way behind, and our mission was really a replica of, of Apollo 8, which was doing the same thing at low Earth orbit. We were supposed to do it at high Earth orbit. And uh, I got a call. I was out at um, Downey, California, and uh, we were going through our command module and uh, watching it being built and doing systems tests. And it was Deke Slayton, and he said, uh, I got to talk to you. Get back here. <laughs> I said, Deke, I'm really busy. Tell me over the phone. And then he, yeah, this again, wasn't any touchy feeling. He said, get, I'll see you this afternoon. Get back here. So <laughs> I got in the airplane, went back, and walked in his office. And he shut the door, and uh, I saw I knew something was. I didn't know what, have any idea why I was back there. And then he broached the idea to me about going to the moon on Apollo, changing places with McDivitt and its crew, and, and uh, taking their capsule, and because it was ahead of us by three months, and then going to the moon. And uh, you know, I immediately said yes. This is what we're there for. So, you know, that's been portrayed as well. Uh, you know, you're acting like the uh, commander. You committed your. You know, I knew those. I know Lovell and Anders better than I knew. I didn't. It could be, and they all wanted. To, we would have all wanted to go to the moon. So, sure, I committed them, but uh, it was uh, never a doubt in my mind why. There was also some question about uh, about uh, whether Deke offered me a, a lunar landing situation, and he did. Uh, I had never even been in a lunar simu- lunar module simulator. I had never. Even, I didn't know anything about the lunar module. So it would have taken me far longer to uh, adjust to, and train for that than, uh, than McDivitt's crew, who's already uh, up to speed on the lunar module. So it made perfect sense, and Slayton did what he always did with integrity. It is amazing to think about that, that organizational structure that uh, you haven't even flown Apollo 8 at, at one point, and, and guys that are prepping for missions after you are training on different equipment and training for different phases, and the way that, that overlap must have happened, rather than, than saying, okay, we're at the end of Apollo 8, now, now let's figure out how to build a lunar lander, and let's start training on that. It's just no. everything was happening in, in it was so a very compressed. It was a very well-thought-out program, and the, the, uh, the person who really, who really 
needs to be honored for the success of the Apollo program after the fire was George Lowe, who became the, the uh, program manager. And uh, he, took, he took control of it and uh, used the resources of uh, NASA far more uh, extensively than did his predecessor, Joe Shea. And uh, if, you, if you tried to, to count on your hands the people that made it work, it was George Lowe, Chris Kraft, uh, let's see, uh, Dr. Gilruth, who was that? Th those were the guys that, that made it happen. General Phillips, who was the uh, the uh, Apollo program manager in Washington, he, he was much more helpful than George Miller, who was uh, the head of manned spaceflight. Miller was more of a uh, bureaucrat than a uh, scientist, in my opinion. Although he did, he did advance the program remarkably by demanding that the Saturn V be all up tested rather than testing one stage at a time. Oh. They tested all three together, and that, that advanced the program dramatically. Interesting. So on Apollo 8, it's Christmas time in 1968, and uh, you and Bill Anders and Jim Lovell you know, become the first people in history to see the entire planet. Is there a way to describe what that felt like? Well, it was... Uh, you know, on the way out there, we saw the, the Earth, and I think the most impressive part about it to me at that time was that you could see the Earth getting smaller, which was a new and, and interesting experience. But uh, what really was uh, captivated our attention was uh, one of the later revolutions of the around the moon. We looked up, and there over the lunar horizon was the Earth. Right, that first Earth rise. Earth rise. And it was the only, the Earth is the only thing in the universe that had any color. It was blue with white clouds and sort of brownish pink continents. Everything else was black and white. The lunar surface below us was terribly distressed and beat up and uh, frankly uninviting. And here was this beautiful blue planet in the in the front. It was that was to me was the from a visual standpoint that was a high point of the whole flight. One of the things that was always so compelling to me was thinking about. So here's the three of you uh, orbiting the moon, looking back at the Earth, uh, and in in the the Earthrise picture that, you know, I would say arguably among the most important photographs ever taken. Um, you three guys are the only human beings alive or dead who aren't in that picture at that time. <laughs> I never thought of it that and way. <laughs> that hit me once that I really had to stop for just a second to think about it, that technically speaking, uh, that that's, uh, that's it. And that, yeah. I don't think any, uh, I think there's only one person in this room who, can, who has any true sense or true idea of what that, uh, what that feels like, what that looks like, and what, what viscerally, what, what's going through your body when you see that sight and you try to come to grips with that. Of, of course, you're busy. You've got a mission to fly, but. Well, that, that, as a matter of fact, uh, that sight uh, really kind of disrupted our flight plan for a while because we were all so mesmerized by seeing the earth. Wow. And, and uh, Bill Anders took the picture uh, and uh, I, I do believe it had a, a major impact, although we still need to, to understand that we're, we're lonely. You know, I read about these guys like, what's his name, Musk yeah. and uh, Bezos, they're going to colonize Mars. That's nonsense. They're never going to colonize Mars. That's, that's foolish. You know, the, the atmosphere on Mars is something like equivalent to 100,000 feet here. There's no, you have to wear a space suit. The temperature, as I understand, is, is average temperature around minus 84. 
You're not going to colonize Mars. You might be able to get a scientific community up there with a few people that you alternate like you do at the South Pole. Now, it's pretty cold here, and we did colonize Wisconsin. So, <laughs> Yeah, but. Uh, that's true. Uh, uh, that's true, but it, but it is a little foreign. Yeah. <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. And it's, we have door issues. Yeah, it's cold. The doors don't work. You name it. Um, so... We we can talk spacecraft all day, but I know that you're a, a lot into to warbirds and vintage aircraft. You've also been uh, a great supporter of EAA. We can't thank you enough for everything you've done, um, and and Susan as well. I mean, she was part of all this. You guys restored vintage uh, aircraft and, and warbirds. Do you have a favorite that stands out for you? Well, I think that my favorite uh, would be the favorite of almost anybody. Was uh, we we're fortunate enough to be able to. Uh, to to own a a P fifty one, I had it converted into a TF P fifty one, so Susan could fly with me. Uh, it was part of the heritage flight. We did our shows from Maine to California and from Florida to Alaska. It was uh, it was remarkable. Uh, we had we had a wonderful time with that that airplane, uh, and I uh, I have a great deal of respect for the people that flew it in combat. It was. Uh, you stop to think, uh, especially the people that flew out of I- uh, Iwo Jima to uh, Japan and over all that water. Those long-range B-29 missions, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I read somewhere where one of the groups of 40-some airplanes went, encountered a uh, a front on the way to Japan, and they, they lost something like 30 airplanes. On it. it was it was a different world back then, but I admi- we're free because of people like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you're here, um, when, when people are listening to this here, it's not live, so you'll be hearing it uh, in recording, but you're here on December 7th. Tonight we're having our Wright Brothers Banquet, uh, and you're our guest of honor to speak about your missions in space, including Apollo 8 for the 50th anniversary coming up. But you're also here uh, for ribbon cutting on our exhibit, and thanks to you, you've entrusted us with your personal collection here in our museum um, on behalf of you know the museum team, myself, I can't thank you enough um, for, for trusting us with that. Well, I want to thank you. As, as you know, we just went through the exhibit. I think you've done a remarkable job. And frankly, I, I'm so glad it's here where people that will be aviation-oriented get a chance to see it rather than, the, than just uh, the every, everyday life people. I, because I do think the EAA has an absolutely vital, uh, absolutely vital, position in uh, general aviation and aviation across this country and i i just hope it has a very good future and i i just uh i know we're, we'll be busy today and i and uh hopefully i have a chance to say it again but i can't thank you enough for your for your friendship and for your your uh just support of everything that we do here i you're it here. really means a lot for all of us you're here oh you're very welcome i i i do it willingly gladly and i'm honored to be here well the, the pleasure is uh is and the privilege is all ours. I can assure you of that. Thank you. Uh, one last question as we as we wrap up. Um, so, give or take about uh, I don't know a week or so. About sixty five years passed between the Wright brothers flight, which as we're recording as we're celebrating tonight, and and your mission to orbit the moon. Um, so, in the intervening in the intervening fifty years. Uh, I don't think anybody would say we've made commensurate progress because I think that's incredible. 120 feet across the sand to a quarter million miles to the moon. But 
what do you think about the progress we've made so far, and, and where do you think is the future of spaceflight? Obviously, uh, you know, we're not going to colonize Mars with, uh, with Tesla and, and Amazon, apparently, but uh, <laughs> um, what, what do you think about where we are and where we're headed? Well, I think we're headed the right way. I, I think people forget that, uh, that the program that I was participating in, the Apollo program, was a really a, a battle in the Cold War, and as a result of that, we had funding because it was a national security issue, sure. uh, and we had the support of the of the vast majority of uh, of, uh, of the population. So I think going forward, it's going to be very more they're difficult. I hope I'm hoping for a well-funded, logical, but maybe not a crash program to do things. And I do think that the uh, the space station, although I'm not up to date on, but I think they've probably done a lot of research on long-duration flight. That'll be helpful. So I think they've made progress, although it's interesting to note that I believe every every president since President Nixon has said we're going to go to Mars, and then they they pronounce it and then never fund it. So okay. it's, a, it's a time. I personally think it's a good idea to go back to the moon. I'd like to see a scientific community established on the moon first. Uh, I, you know, I read, oh, we're gonna, we found... Uh, we found water on Mars, maybe, so we'll be able to make fuel. And I go, huh? <laughs> Come on, give me a break. But anyway, that's, that's the kind of nonsense that you listen to now. So let me ask you this then. Uh, should we go to Mars at all? Well, I think we should go to Mars. And I'm, I, I think that if we ever lose the, uh, the idea to improve our knowledge and increase our, our uh, expanse into the solar system, we've lost a lot. So I th- think we should, but I just think it has to be done on a rational basis, not some sort of a, uh, you know, Mars at all costs basis. Fair enough. Well, Frank, we uh, once again can't thank you enough for everything that you do for the organization, everything you've done around this new exhibit, and uh, and especially taking some time out of your, your busy schedule today to sit with us, uh, enjoy this episode. Um, sorry about the door. I'll bring, <laughs> you know? I'll bring tools next time. Would you, <laughs> would you please? Yes. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what, here at EA, failure is occasionally an option. <laughs> um, but, but that's okay. We it roll with it. it. We it move ahead. It didn't from the mission. Nobody came it, in. That's so. true. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't detract didn't from the mission. All right. Well, thank you once again for, uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks, as always, to everybody out there for listening, uh, for all the feedback you send to us at feedback at EAA.org. Uh, comments you leave on the blog uh, where we post these inspire.ea.org and of course the reviews on itunes and other places like that without those comments without those feedback uh, bits of feedback we would not be able to continue this show so thanks again for listening and we look forward to hearing from you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot